Welcome to another episode of Crown and Crozier, the podcast on church, state, and faithful citizenship. I'm your host, Patrick Brown. Today is a special episode. Our guest is Garnet Jenis, Conservative Member of Parliament for the riding of Sherwood Park, Fort Saskatchewan in Alberta, Canada. He served for seven years in the House of Commons, having been first elected in 2015, and he's widely regarded as one of the most thoughtful and credible voices on human rights and religious liberty in the House. He's also the host of his own podcast show, Resuming Debate, where he often invites members from other parties to engage in civil and spirited discussions around big issues of the day. In this conversation, we turn over many stones, we go down a few rabbit holes, including how a Holocaust survivor in his family and a German bishop who resisted the Nazis helped inspire his pathway into politics, what it's like discerning the vocation of public office, the joys and challenges of living out the faith after you're elected, juggling family and professional life, the guy's got five kids, as well as whether there's such a thing as Christian camaraderie on Parliament Hill. We also make sure to tackle some current events, the legacy of Indian residential schools and Pope Francis's recent penitential visit to Canada, the outlook for the pro-life movement in Canada following the U.S. Supreme Court's recent decision to overturn Roe versus Wade, and what's at stake in the current leadership race for the Conservative Party of Canada and which candidates are getting Garnett support. Speaking of throwing weight behind a noble cause and campaign, be sure to follow us on social media or drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Subscribe or leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on how to support the show, check out our website at www.crownandcrozier.com. There are two swords. And the question is, which sword is superior, the spiritual sword or the temporal sword? And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. I die his majesty's good servant at God's first. Welcome to a very special episode of Crown and Crozier. Our guest is Canadian Member of Parliament, Garnet Jenis. Garnet, a warm welcome. Really appreciate you joining us. Well, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's really good to be with you today. I wondered if the if the uh, mayor of Brampton was branching out since the conservative leadership race and launched a <laughs> podcast as well on Catholic issues. And uh, I guess it's a common name, but uh, but I, I listened to the podcast from time to time. I really enjoyed it. It's an honor for me to be a guest. Thank you very much. And in full disclosure, so there's no misunderstanding, no relation on the part of your <laughs> humble host to the incumbent mayor of Brampton and now one time putative candidate in the federal conservative leadership race. And uh, we will circle Maybe back we'll to, that to that topic, yes. topic in a moment. <laughs> yes. I need to beg your indulgence. I'm going to start with a comment that you probably get all the time. And, and I imagine that it gets old or it's getting old pretty quickly. You're one of the younger members of parliament who currently sits in the Canadian House, that's correct? Yeah, we've, we've got a, a fairly young House of Commons relative to, to other parliaments. Um, so there are there are certainly a number that are younger than me, but I'm, I'm relatively younger, yeah, 35. Looking at your bio, I mean, you're, you're 35 years old, first elected as a member of parliament in 2015, about seven years ago, when you were in your late 20s. So doing the math, that means you've spent almost one-fifth or 20% of your life representing your constituents in the federal legislative branch. That's an extraordinary accomplishment. I want to start by asking, what's it like having cultivated that level of experience and cultivated the opportunity to shoulder that type of responsibility in federal elected office so early on in life? 
Well, it's a real honor to be able to serve my community. Um, I feel like I age three or four years for every year that I'm in Parliament. But it, it is nice now at this point, having been in for seven years, that you start to kind of repeat kinds of experiences and you're able to draw a little bit from that experience. I know the first year, first couple years, uh, everything was new. If there was a, a legislative issue, a, a staff issue, a, a sort of relationship with a colleague issue, you kind of had to navigate it as someone who had never dealt with that situation before. But now I'm sort of at the point where you can draw on past templates or past experiences to say, okay, this this particular bill looks or feels a lot like uh, this other uh, bill that we dealt with uh, four or five years ago, so uh, I can hopefully uh, uh, avoid the pitfalls <laughs> that were a problem last time. And you know, this is the the third conservative leadership race that uh, that I've been a part of. So again, being able to draw on some of those uh, those lessons learned, it's nice to have a little bit of a little bit of experience. And I think um, one of the arguments I made as a young candidate was was that look, I'm I'm not going to pretend that I. I'm going to know everything uh, when I first walk in the door, but I hope that I can accumulate some experience that will allow me to uh, continue to grow in my service to this community. Uh, and I think I think I've been able to become just more effective as a result of accumulating a bit more experience now. Yeah, and, and I imagine that perspective has been enriched in terms of what's gone on in your family and your personal life as well. I, I mean, my understanding is you and your wife are you're up to five kids now. We're up to five, yeah, and. Uh, what a what a blessing that is as well. It's uh, it's wonderful as my kids get older too and get more involved in different aspects of uh, of public life. I've got uh, five that range between four months and uh, and nine years old, and our fifth one was born on the same day that we had the vote in Parliament on the Emergencies Act being brought in. So uh, it seems that kind of with with personal life and work life, kind of things all happening at, at the same time, it rains, it pours. But uh, but yeah, what a blessing to have a big family like that. I'm very grateful. Well, amen to that. My wife and I have also been blessed with five beautiful, wonderful children. I can't imagine juggling all of uh, what's on your plate, though. Well, my wife's the real hero in, in all of this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure many in our audience are asking, I mean, how does this guy do it? How do you and your wife manage all the, the sacrifice, sacrifices and demands involved? I guess there's a, there's a few aspects to it. Number one, uh, we get uh, we get good support. I mean, uh, we, we've got grandparents uh, that are that are very active and members of the community who uh, who know the juggling I'm doing and are are certainly supportive and helpful with that. I, I do a lot of meetings remotely. This is sort of one of the nice things about just the emerging use of this technology that I can that I can join your podcast from the comfort of my home office and you know change a diaper before and afterwards, and so I can I be, you know, be be a bit involved in in family life and have that kind of. Uh, integration, working from home and going back and forth. There's no getting around the travel, though. I mean, doing the job well requires you to spend some time uh, in Ottawa and uh, in the case of, of the work I do on foreign affairs as well. I mean, some time, some time in further further flung places. And, uh, and that involves significant sacrifice. And a part of how we do it as well is just have good conversation with, with the kids about you know, what are the things we're trying to achieve as a family in politics this is a sacrifice we're making uh, together. And it's, it's for my kids, it's for the, the values that we believe in as a family that we, uh, they, we work, work together. Uh, when I was first elected, my oldest daughter was, I think, uh, three or four, uh, when we when we had started having some of these conversations about uh, religious freedom, the work I was doing on on international religious freedom and understanding that as, as an expression of the values we share as a family. And, um, and she really bought into that. I can share a story quickly. It was uh, 
I was in Ottawa. She was at home. We were, we were on uh, Skype and she was crying saying, daddy, I don't want you to ever go to Ottawa again. And, and kind of in that moment, I said, well, we go to church, right? That's important for our family. There's some people in certain parts of the world who aren't able to go to church, whose government doesn't allow them to go to church. And part of the work that that I try to do, that we try to do as a family in politics is about uh, defending the rights of other people to practice their faith. And um, and that really meant something to her, even as, as quite a young child. And it's continued to be part of our kind of ongoing uh, discourse about the sacrifices we're making. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm, I'm guessing you approach your job, not just as a job, but, but as a vocation. And I'm wondering at, at what point in your, your early formative years, you began to discern the prospect of, of politics and, and public service as a vocation. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And I, I guess I was always raised in a family where, where a job wasn't just a job. So my, my father was and is a, a physician, you know, for him, just, just loving being a doctor, serving his patients, he didn't come home and say, well, another, another day, another paycheck, let's, uh, let's get on with, with life. He, he would come home and just share with, with joy and excitement, a sense of, of what he had been able to contribute. And, and that passion came through my family and that, uh, three of, three of the five of us, uh, became, became doctors, which was, I think, impacted by, by his, uh, his sense of vocation, uh, as a physician, uh, and, uh, for medicine wasn't, wasn't my thing. Uh, politics was my thing from a relatively young age, but I think I got that same sense of, uh, not just wanting to go up and gr- grow up and, and get a paycheck, but wanting to do something that would meaningfully impact uh, the world around me. Uh, other key influences for me as well were, were, um, my grandparents, my maternal grandparents were quite close to us. My maternal grandmother was a Holocaust survivor. Uh, her father wow. was Jewish. She was living in Germany during the Second World War. And uh, Holocaust uh, education and awareness was was sort of a big part of, of my upbringing. And as part of that, seeing the role that politics played in my grandmother's life, obviously, a uh, very, very negative role, but, but then seeing the positive role that certain other politicians, people like Winston Churchill, uh, were able to play in uh, in foreseeing the the dangers that were associated with the Nazis, and um, so so some of that formation as well uh, in terms of international human rights that came through my grandparents was uh, was very important. And um, and I got involved as a teenager in, in various aspects of politics and realized that that I loved it. I think one one indication of a person's vocation. Uh, it's not the only and perhaps or perhaps the most important indication, but one indication is just where do you feel really comfortable being and and where uh, some of the activities required fit with things that uh, come naturally to you. I joke sometimes there's this, you know, the movie, uh, the movie Troy, there's the line where where he's asked, why, why did you choose this life? And he says, I chose nothing. I was born and this is what I am. So that's, a, that's not quite true. But there's there's some sense of that in the idea of, of Christian vocation, right, that that we are all um, made and born with certain certain kinds of uh, of instincts and aptitudes that may uh, that may make us uh, good fits in certain kinds of uh, certain kinds of work. And may I ask, did you have any political heroes, or was there anyone perhaps from a, a Catholic or a Christian background who had served in, in public office? And and did you have a 
a patron saint as you were campaigning or discerning or any any special devotion in that regard? I was Catholic by the time I ran for office, but I didn't grow up Catholic. I grew up uh, evangelical Protestant. So yeah, lots of lots of different influences that uh, come from both uh, both of those traditions. Uh, obviously, you know, Saint Thomas More is uh, is someone that's that's important to me, and and I think would be to any any Catholic in public life. Uh, in particular, uh, less lesser known, Blessed Clemens von Galen. Uh, he was the the Archbishop of the area in Germany where my grandmother was during the Second World War, and he was a he was a vocal, a fearless critic of the Nazis. And a, someone that, as a as a bishop, was willing to speak about politics, and uh, of course, it was a, at a time in an environment where uh, one one couldn't easily get away with just standing up and and criticizing the government. But he had so much sort of capital and popularity in the area that the the regime decided that they couldn't move against him until after the war, and they very much planned to, but they they never got the chance. And so, Von Galen is someone I would uh, I would really commend to the to the consideration of your listeners as a, as a great example of uh, someone who wasn't a politician in that sense, but who spoke into political reality for justice and human rights. My, my grandmother, uh, who who was not Catholic, who was uh, Protestant by uh, confession, Jewish by, by background, identified his criticisms of the Nazis as kind of establishing the tenor in which local people were willing to uh, shelter someone in her situation. It was because of the circulation of his sermons, uh, well beyond the Catholic community as well, the circulation of his his sermons that people were willing to to help shelter her and prevented her from being uh, being captured. G- growing up, thinking back, uh, certainly, I mean, William Wilberforce is, uh, is always, a, I think, a guiding light for, for people when it comes to human rights work and defense of justice and human dignity. And, and one hero that I have to mention is the, the local member of parliament in my area, Ken Epp, uh, when I was growing up. Just uh, an extremely principled, humble, devout man who passed away recently, actually, and I had the honor of speaking at his funeral and, and just remembering uh, how his example of steadfast, fearless, principled service made politics look like, a, like an honorable profession to a young man growing up in his riding. That's wonderful. I mean, what a joy and blessing to have all those uh, influences in your life at, at such a young formative age. So you were first elected in, in 2015. You had a bit of experience on Parliament Hill or, or in the Ottawa bubble before that. Can you speak a little bit to uh, your experience uh, on, on Parliament Hill before you decided to run for office? Sure. Yeah, I, I had uh, an opportunity to come to Ottawa and study uh, after high school. I graduated in 2005. I studied at Carleton uh, in Ottawa. And so so Ottawa was a bit of a familiar city to me, which was nice. I had some uh, sort of existing non, non-political uh, networks uh, in Ottawa. And and uh, and I had worked as a staffer sort of towards the tail end of my university experience, sort of between 2008 and 2009, uh, spent some time in, in the prime minister's office and a couple other offices. So I had some existing relationships on the Hill and a bit of a sense of, uh, of how the ecosystem worked. So that was those really valuable experience. And part of the pitch that I made to, to people during the election that I had the benefit of obviously a strong local connection. I, I grew up in my riding. I live in my riding now. But Ottawa was a familiar enough place, and uh, that helped me get a bit of a jump on it. So when you decided to throw your hat into the ring, was there one singular trigger or hook, or was it kind of a just an accumulation of, of your experience and your passions or interests? Or what finally prompted you to, to make that leap over the threshold? I've had this sense for a while of, of political vocation, of, of wanting to serve uh, in public life. And uh, of course, there were specific issues we were dealing with at the time. 
I think it's good for people who go into politics to uh, have strong feelings on a on a broad enough range of issues where you may not have an opportunity to to work on the one issue that you come in thinking about. Yeah, you have to have a bit of a sense of what are my opinions on a spectrum of things so that I can find the opportunities to move forward on the things that that make the most sense. You know, when I was initially making the decision, two two big issues that that continue to be on the agenda concern about international human rights at the time it was uh, it was the genocide of Christians in the Yazidis at the hands of uh, of Daesh or ISIS and then economic concerns around the impact on my local community about some of the uh, what I would describe as the as the anti-energy policies of the Trudeau government it wasn't the Trudeau government at the time it was the it was the, what was being proposed from the opposition and those were the international human rights issues those economic issues they were they were part of my original political formation my my grandmother's experience and kind of connecting that to what I was seeing at the time uh, with the the genocide of of Yazidis and, and and various Christian communities my grandfather had been a uh, an engineer working in Alberta during the national energy program so uh, again seeing kind of a repeat of some of those policies that are, are threatening our regional economy I was already a candidate when the uh, Supreme Court decision on euthanasia came down and that's you know it's an example of you know you may you may go in thinking about one set of issues but then something is is foisted onto your plate either by some external event or a decision of the government and again that that has continued to be an active debate over the last seven years that i've been in parliament uh and it's been really amazing and and tragic to see uh, how far we've slid down the slippery slope so-called in such a short period of time uh where you know, one day it's, oh, that would never happen. And then the next day it's like, well, why not? And I guess there has been an accumulation of growing opposition to to the government's very extreme agenda on what they call medical assistance in dying, uh, their current push now to to look at including including minors and things. So, so that's one of those issues where, yeah, we started somewhere and the goalposts have really moved in seven years. And one, one maintains one's convictions while also kind of observing and responding to the new dynamics. Well, I think that's a good pivot point into the next set of questions I wanted to run by you. Just taking two of those issues, medical assistance in dying and international human rights, those are ones for which uh, people of faith uh, have strong convictions. Not to say that uh, people of or non-believers do not, but certainly one who is motivated or animated by religious convictions w- would seek to advocate on on those issues. And I'm wondering, in your seven years in politics, to what extent have you felt comfortable bringing in your own religious beliefs and perspective into your advocacy, into your work on those issues? And, and, and to what extent do you, feel, do you feel comfortable talking openly about, about your Christian faith in general, but also as it relates to these specific issues? Yeah, thank you. I think, I think that's, a, that's a very important question uh, to raise. And I think the most important point about that uh, for me is that I draw from a, in particular, a Catholic tradition that emphasizes the role of reason in faith. And I think this is similar to some other traditions, but maybe different from some as well, where where people sort of say, well, it's it's either faith or it's reason, right? As as if the implication being that that faith is sort of this this non-rational process of arriving at assumptions that may or may not be credible and and standing on those regardless. But that, that's that's not what I mean by faith. That's not what, what Catholics and I don't think that's what most Christians mean by by faith. I think there's a there's a unity of truth. So if if something is true, 
I should be able to defend it in terms that are understandable to my to my audience. And so uh, when I'm making speeches in Parliament about uh, about any issue, about international human rights, about uh, domestic human rights issues, about about economic issues, even I am aware of the teachings of the church on on those matters. But I, I think it makes sense for me to present the ideas that I'm presenting in a way that's that's accessible to the listening audience, that makes sense to the listening audience. And if I can't do that successfully, if I can't explain truth using reason in an accessible way, then I need to, to up my game. Of course, on, on many issues, whether we're, again, human rights, uh, subsidiarity, I think there's there's a lot of wisdom to draw from in, in the Catholic social social uh, tradition. But it would, it would be silly to get up in Parliament and say, well, just, just because uh, this text that, that nobody else here, uh, well, not nobody, but, but that hardly anybody else here takes as credible, this is, this is where I stand. You know, I, 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 it's, your, Parliament is supposed to be about, about persuasion. Right. Facilitating consensus, getting support for your position, and, and using the optimal language and, and arguments to achieve that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Do you feel challenged or have you ever felt challenged living out your faith in, in elected office? What's it like? What what has been your experience uh, in general uh, being a, a Christian member of parliament? I, I don't know that the challenges of being a member of parliament who's a Christian are that different from the challenges of being a member of parliament who has uh, sort of firm convictions of, of any sort. Hopefully, most members of parliament come in with some uh, kinds of moral commitments, with some sense of uh, of of what is right and what is wrong, of of the way a person ought be treated and the way a person ought not be treated. Uh, maybe there are some members of parliament who come in with no moral commitments, but but hopefully we're a, a predominantly a legislature made up of people who who have convictions, who are there to defend those convictions, and then hopefully you you can in most cases find alignment between your own convictions and what your constituents want, and also the direction your party is going. Trying to line those things up can be uh, can be a challenge. But if you're, you know, if if you run an election, if you if you talk about who who you are and what you believe, and people vote for you, hopefully that's some demonstration of alignment between your own convictions and people in your constituency. If there was an alignment, I suppose I suppose they they would vote for somebody else. And so once you once you get to Ottawa, then you have you have some mandate to, uh, as Burke said, to exercise not just your industry but also your judgment on behalf of your, your constituents as as directed by them. So I mean, I, I think uh, of course, as a as a as a member of Parliament with specific convictions about human rights, about human dignity, there are cases that come up where it would be easier or more convenient in the moment to not uh, stand by those those convictions. And I think if you if you start to kind of make your your moral commitments negotiable, then pretty soon you have nothing left and you've kind of negotiated away everything. That's not the right way to go. I don't think that's the right way to go. And I think I've I've stood true to my convictions. I, I will also say that while it can be hard to stand by your convictions, it's also hard in a different way to not stand by your convictions. I think people for whom everything is negotiable, they don't remember what they said yesterday because they're not seeking personal consistency. And they lose the support of those that, that got them there because people start to ask, well, well what, what do you stand for? What are you here, here advocating? 
The challenge of being a person of conviction is that you can be attacked for those convictions. But the the upside uh, strategically is that if people know where you stand, then they'll they'll be behind you if if they share your convictions, uh, even if they share your convictions on on some issues and not others. So so that's the dynamic of of uh, of being a person of faith, really, or anyone with specific beliefs about dignity and truth, specific beliefs about anything. You know, I I think. Um, uh, I'm still here, and <laughs> I uh, think I've been able to have an impact and earn earn some begrudging respect, even from people that don't don't agree with me on things. I'm interested to hear a little bit more about the experience um, of being a, a Roman Catholic in the the House of Commons. Rightly or wrongly, I think there's a perception on the part of some Catholics in Canada that there's perhaps special treatment or, or animus that might be reserved for uh, the Catholic Church in Canadian political discourse. I'm not necessarily saying on the floor of the House of Commons, but perhaps in our mainstream media or on the part of other commentators or, or observers. I mean, we're having this conversation on day two of Pope Francis's visit to Canada to seek and, and promote reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. And there have been many criticisms leveled against the Catholic Church in light of the legacy of the residential schools experience with some voices essentially saying in as many words that the experience of, of uh, Catholic involvement in residential schools is, is yet another strike against a denomination that is out of step with uh, the evolution of Canadian culture and, and mainstream Canadian society and uh, shouldn't expect to have as prominent a place uh, as it used to in the discourse. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, I guess there's a couple issues there which which are distinct, and and let's talk about both of them: the um, uh, the issue of, of anti-Catholic bigotry and the issue of uh, of residential uh, schools. In terms of anti-Catholic bigotry, there's there's no doubt that this this exists, and I think requires more recognition and discussion. It, it takes different forms. I mean, last year in the summer we had this this spate of uh of violent attacks on churches uh, churches being burned down vandalized and uh the response at the political level was just so incredibly muted and any time you would bring it up people would say well yes of course they shouldn't be doing this but let's understand the context or whatever and, and just nobody would say that uh if we were talking about attacks on uh, on other other faith communities if if somebody was attacking a, a mosque if someone was attacking a, a sikh or hindu or jewish house Syn- of worship a synagogue yeah. yeah and and some media commentator said well it was wrong but let's think about the circumstances that that might have motivated someone to want to do this and you know that that would be uh, anathematized right so, I mean, I, I, I visited the, the site of the historic church in Morinville the, the morning after, very likely somebody deliberately set, set a fire there. And although nobody was hurt, this was extremely dangerous to human life. There's a gas line under the church. There's an apartment building nearby. So, so the fact that these uh, violent attacks on churches didn't at any point lead to, to significant loss of life is, uh, is not so much by design as it's just, the, fortunately, the way, the way things turned out. Let's acknowledge that that this is a reality and requires uh, some engagement and, and discussion. And, and look, I don't I don't think Catholics or the Catholic Church is looking for some kind of institutional privileged position within our society. Uh, Catholics are looking to to have their religious freedom respected and and be part of the dynamic pluralism that that Canadian society is uh, without without discrimination. Let's talk about the discourse around uh, residential schools 
and I think it's just important to underline off the top that that what happened with residential schools was a was a great evil. And also, I think it's important to say that it was an evil that was deeply at odds with Catholic values and Catholic teaching. So uh, the Catholic Church has long emphasized the importance of the family, the connection between parents and children, and the way in which children are raised and supported within uh, communities that, uh, and the importance of subsidiarity. And the idea of residential schools, of taking children away from their families, away from their communities, uh, not only uh, can we recognize it as, as wrong, but we can recognize it as, as deeply at odds with Catholic values and Catholic teaching. And, uh, and it should be the church building on long-established doctrine, which says that connection between parents and children, uh, the role of grandparents, the connections that exist within communities that this policy sought to, sought to rupture, that those, those family connections are so important. What, what we saw with residential schools was a government policy. It was, it was a government policy that churches, uh, ch- church-affiliated entities were involved in implementing and were absolutely uh, wrong to do so. Uh, so, I mean, we're, we're recording this. Obviously, the Pope's the Pope's here in Canada, and by the time your listeners uh, hear it, they'll hear this episode. They'll have been they'll have been more uh, important developments on this. I, I just think we have to understand that, that that those who use residential schools to try to negate the the independent moral witness of the church are are missing the point. The problem, part of the problem was that the church failed to be the church. That is that the church in Canada, many religious entities, went along with the tenor of the times. They em- embraced a government uh, approach and a government policy that was at odds with the faith. Uh, the lesson from that era should be that the church needs to be the church. That is to be a moral witness for for Catholic ideas and, and, uh, and Catholic teaching. So uh, far from seeing seeing the need to diminish the Catholic voice and in public discourse, I think one lesson we should draw from this is that the the ideas of strong families, of of subsidiarity, uh, of of respect for cultural communities and their desire to pass on their values, that that those Catholic ideas uh, should be ones that continue to be be heard and proclaimed. On that last point, with respect to the the members of Parliament like yourself who who profess the Catholic faith, is there any camaraderie? Uh, amongst you folks, uh, is there a, a kind of a, a unique or distinct shared sense of purpose and mission among uh, members of parliament, whether it's in your own caucus or across party lines, uh, as it relates to uh, fostering this sense of of common cause with with other Catholics in parliament and seeking to 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 effectively witness to the moral teachings of the church? Yeah, so I mean, I think in general. Uh, our, our system is becoming more partisan, and uh, in the past, you might have had more opportunities for cross-party community that was organized around various shared principles. I think that's taken also a big hit during COVID. It's it's harder to form some of those communities. I think I think it would be worthwhile to talk more about about how to build across party lines, uh, communities of, of elected officials who who have some common objectives, and, and there are some of those. Those issues, they, those those groups, they tend less to be organized on on faith lines as on on other kinds of lines. Canada is an extremely diverse polity, right? And I think for for practical practical political work, forming coalitions across different kinds of lines is is uh, is is very important. Finding a community with people who uh, may have some things different but other things in common. But you know, I, I think 
as someone as someone who's, who sometimes goes to you know seven or eight a.m. mass at St. Pat's, not not as often as I should, right? But you know, occasionally you see another member of Parliament there, and it's it's uh, nice to make that connection and say, okay, maybe maybe we uh, maybe we need to spend more time together talking about the things we have in common. That's the Basilica. That's just a few blocks south exactly. of Parliament Hill, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, just on that point around uh, the potential role of of, of religion or or, or faith based practitioners mobilizing together. I mean, I mean, I'm struck by just the history in our country of predominantly British Protestants cooperating with predominantly French Catholics coming together, helping to give birth to the Confederation, to the Dominion of Canada. Just in, in that light or in that regard, have you picked up from your colleagues just kind of an appreciation or is, is there a general appreciation or awareness of the role that religion has played in Canadian history and Canadian identity? and the importance uh, that religion retains as part of the social fabric in this country. Um, I mean, I think there would be a, there would be a, a wide spectrum of views in parliament about, about the role of, of faith. It is interesting. You point to sort of the, the founding moments of our country. We, we are a country that, and, and this was, was much more rare in the 19th century, right? Where our organizing principle did not, did not say uh, you've got to be, you know, we're, we're, we're built around one particular faith community. At the time, it was Catholic and Protestant, which seems like less of a big, a big bridge today than it, than it would have at the time. And pluralism is a defining feature of, of Canadian identity. And uh, I think now in 21st century Canada, being able to identify points of common ground across a, a much broader range of faith communities uh, to work together on issues yeah, and I think you know. Also, diff- different people mean maybe different things by by faith or religion. This is a this is an important thing as well, right? I mean, for for some people, their their sense of faith is about sort of community association uh, without a deep sense of personal belief. For others, there may be a sense of personal belief without belonging. There are there are belongers who don't believe and believers who don't connect as part of a faith community. So uh, I, I think there, there's a tendency among members of parliament for there to be a lot of um, a lot of people who are members of a lot of things, right? We they, they tend to be sort of a joining type of group in general, and that's maybe unsurprising in that part of how our system gets people elected is if you can organize people that are part of whatever uh, whatever group or association you're part of to support you, then you're more likely to be able to get get elected. But there's there's a big mix in terms of of how people understand or uh, understand the meaning or significance of those faith associations. And certainly this is one of the many dynamics that plays out in the context of a race for an elected office position or for yeah. a position within the party. Uh, uh, your party's in the the midst of a leadership race. As you mentioned, it's the, the third leadership race uh, in five years, which is a, a bit of an unusual stretch. For the benefit of our audience, just a quick refresh on, on why there's a leadership race. This was triggered by the resignation of the former conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole back in February of this year. He had held the leadership position for about 18 months, winning in August 2020. About one year into his tenure, there was a federal election in Canada, September 2021. Um, By most accounts, it seemed that the party's performance in that election didn't quite meet expectations with with no gain of of the seat count in the House of Commons. Uh, Mr. O'Toole became the leader after his predecessor, Andrew Scheer, stepped down after three years in that role and after losing the, the 2019 federal election. So I'll just start with the general question. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on the current leadership race and, and what it means for the party? I think a lot of us are hoping that, <laughs> that, that, that this one will, uh, 
uh, will be the leadership race that will obviate the need for further leadership races for uh, for a little while yet. That whoever wins will will lead us into government and and keep our team united and firing on on all cylinders, giving Canadians the good government that they they deserve. I mean, there are some particular circumstances that that have led to the different leadership races that we've had. The first of the three was Stephen Harper resigning after having been prime minister for 10 years and leader for longer than that. So obviously a fairly natural time to have a leadership race. Andrew Scheer did well in the 2019 election in terms of making gains. And I think uh, he probably could have made the choice to stay as leader in the end for a variety of, I mean, personal reasons as well as as others. He, he made the decision to, to step back as leader. And I think that that should remind people that politics is human, that there are a lot of factors that go into people's decisions that are personal as well as political. And that's part of the reality. And, and thank goodness we're governed by human beings because uh, because we've all seen the matrix, right? So so better better governed by human beings than machines. And and sometimes people need, need to take a step back for whatever reason. So, I mean, with, with Aaron, it was a little bit more of a uh, contentious process. And I mean, there were some things that obviously weren't working, but I, but I have a lot of respect for him in terms of, of uh, some of the things he was trying to do. I, I don't agree with everything he was trying to do. And I'm, my position's on the record as saying that it was it was time to, to have a new race, but no no ill will there at all. I mean, this is uh, people do what they believe is right and not everybody agrees. And, and that's uh, and that's the way that's the way it works. Uh, so, so we're into a leadership race now. And look, it's a, a very exciting leadership race, exciting, not just for politicos like me, but apparently exciting to uh, the more than 650,000 Canadians who've signed up and gotten memberships to participate in this leadership race. We have five candidates remaining in the race. And I think those candidates do represent a real kind of dynamic uh, diversity in terms of, of perspectives. Uh, one impact of implication of that is there's been, there's been fractious commentary back and forth. But look, it's, it's a leadership race. It's exciting. Ideas are being exchanged. Policies are being put forward. And lots and lots of, uh, of Canadians driven by the excitement of that race, but also by, by a real frustration about the direction of the current government are, I think, being drawn into our party. Uh, the agenda of the current government is, is quite extreme in various respects. You know, we could talk about a number of them, uh, but also I think people are just frustrated by the the incredible incompetence that they're seeing from the government, where it's it's all about looking like you care instead of actually getting the job done, and you know, drama without results. I mean, look at look at the grotesque delays on passports, the the situations at airports. Uh, I mean, these are these are not values questions; these are basic government competence questions, and. So the combination of these things is, I think, leading people to to really want our party to succeed and do well. In the race, have you come out in, in favor of, of one candidate? Yes, I have. So maybe just as as, as context for this, I, I always encourage people to fill out their whole ballot. You can mark a first choice, a second choice, a third choice. And I know there's there's some groups out there that say say, no, choose your favorite and mark them number one and leave the rest blank. With all due respect, I don't think that's a wise strategy because the ballots are counted in a preferential way. It's only your first choice that is seen unless your first choice candidate drops off the ballot. And if that happens, then your your ballot moves to uh, moves to the place of your second choice. If you don't mark a second choice, then at the point at which your first choice candidate drops off, uh, your ballot just gets uh, gets thrown out. It's 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 after your, your 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 first choice is counted. But then if you don't have a second choice and your first choice is no longer in the in the run, then you're it's as good as not voting. So I don't think that's very wise. I encourage 
encourage people to, you know, of the five candidates, think about your first choice through fifth choice. So, so I delivered a first and second choice endorsement. My first choice endorsement is for Leslin Lewis. And we can talk about why. Um, and my second choice is for uh, Pierre Polver, and we can we can talk about uh, why as well. I, I think, in a sense, uh, both of those candidates represent different predominant traditions within within conservatism. I see uh, Dr. Lewis as as advocating a, a kind of traditional classic conservative uh, outlook, which puts the the strong emphasis on. Uh, on family, community, solidarity, uh, and and Pierre is uh, has really in his in his rhetoric and discussion, and it's reflective of his his values. Put a big emphasis on what might be called classic liberalism, uh, the defense of freedom, and 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 I don't mean to imply that each of those candidates are sort of monolithically that tradition. Uh, Leslie Lewis has also put a, a big emphasis on freedom. I think Pierre has uh, some traditional classic conservative elements to his his discourse as well. But I mean, I'm putting Leslin first because her points of emphasis are are closer to the issues that uh, that most animate me. But I'm very happy uh, selecting Pierre as number two because I think he's he's got a lot of important things to say uh, as well, and and he represents a very important part of that conservative tradition as well. So so those are my number one and number two. Um, I will have a three, four, five. I haven't I haven't really made public comments on that yet. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. But for me, the main thing is is those one two options. Again, there's a perception, rightly or wrongly, that sticking with the, the federal conservative party, but also provincial conservative parties in Canada, that when it comes time for leadership races, candidates will tack towards the right. There's a recognition that at the federal and provincial level, there are many conservative members, for lack of a better term, I'll call them traditional values voters, uh, many of them motivated by, by faith, profess adherence to the Christian faith, uh, perhaps not, but, but many of them do. And there's been a perception that come leadership time, the candidates court this subset of the membership, uh, talk about traditional values, family values, issues that are near and dear to social conservatives. Uh, but when they get, if they're successful in getting into the leadership chair, uh, some of the commitments, some of the signals fall by the wayside. Perhaps even more than that, they don't just fall by the wayside, but there's almost a, a turn, uh, a 180 degree shift. Uh, things that had been said to uh, perhaps faith communities or, or members of faith communities during the leadership race, uh, there, there's a reversal or, or, or almost a contradiction. You know, there's there's some cynicism and frustration that can sink in when you see that pattern repeated. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think there was an element of that in the leadership experience with Mr. O'Toole, who, who was seen to be courting members of the social conservative uh, demographic within the conservative party. And then Fast forward 18 months later, I mean, there was there was real frustration and alienation. I'm wondering, can, can you just speak to that a little bit? Yeah, that's a, a really important, important question. And I, I appreciate this is a bit tangential, but I appreciate just the acknowledgement of some of the fuzziness around the the terminology, because you'd have you'd have a lot of voters who might identify with with some some labels and not others. But the Conservative Party is made up of people with with some different philosophical points of emphasis, but sometimes the the labels don't summarize them well. Any anyways, I mean, in, in terms of the, the the real question you're asking, which is about the perception of of pivots that sometimes happen. Uh, post leadership race, I guess a couple things we'll, we'll say about it. The people, bluntly speaking, the people best known for trying to make grand pivots have not been very successful, right? So, I think if if people feel that they've been burned by certain politicians that make grand pivots, well, I think I think sometimes 
the folks that have have done that in the most obvious and cynical ways have been uh, have been burned back. That doesn't mean that it doesn't happen, or that doesn't mean that it could never happen again. But I think it does mean that folks who are running for leadership are more likely to want to learn the lessons of some of that past experience. I think it is really important to not give in to cynicism, to not presume that one instance of betrayal is necessarily going to be repeated over and over, over and over again. I think uh, I think you have to get back out there and say, okay, we supported someone we thought uh, was going to be a certain way and didn't pan out that way. So we will try to learn the lessons of that experience, but recognize that, that if you say, I'll never trust anyone again, because you were betrayed once, uh, then you're you're going to be stuck just sitting on the sidelines forever. And and one other thing I'll say is that in practice, decisions are made in politics by those who are in the room. And I think sometimes folks might be represented at the membership level, but not be as represented in other kinds of, of environments. You know, you have decision-making happening through the membership. You also have decision-making happening through party caucuses, through staff. So understanding that being involved in leadership races is important, but it's not the end of the story because there are there are new events that are going to emerge. There are going to be uh, subsequent decision points. And so uh, having your voice heard in all of those subsequent decision points as well is part of the process. If you elect a leader who shares your values and then and then you say, okay, well, that's great. Now we can we can go home. And that leader is left with a structure around him him or her that is that is not as inclined to work with the values that they articulate in the leadership race, then even if that person is very sincere, they will have a harder time uh, delivering on the commitments they made in the leadership. With with a theme of the, the diverse issues and perspectives that are debated in the context of a leadership race and a perennial issue that is of interest to a sizable portion of the, uh, the Conservative Party membership, admittedly a, mi- a minority, but a sizable minority. Uh, and that's the, the pro-life issue. I'm wondering if you can Speak to folks in terms of what you would want them to bear in mind uh, in the context of, of this leadership race, but, but also in the larger context of, of the pro-life movement and some of the, the heightened attention that's now been foisted on the issue in, in the aftermath of the U.S. Supreme Court's recent decision overturning Roe versus Wade. The simple reality is that there, are, there is a, a subset within the Conservative Party membership uh, that feels very strongly about the pro-life issue, and, and there can be frustration and cynicism at times. Uh, as it relates to you know how the issue is treated, or even if it, even if it's allowed to be talked about, uh, depending on on who's leader or or what have you, what what would be your thoughts in that regard? Yeah, thank you. It's a it's a big question and and an important question uh, in the context of the leadership race. As I think folks will know, uh, Dr. Lesson Lewis is uh, is personally pro life as as am I. I see that as a as a feature, not a bug, so to speak. It, it is important to underline in terms of the leadership of our party uh, that we have a long established norm of free votes on quote unquote issues of conscience. And I don't see that ever changing. So that's important. And it should it should speak to people uh, about the importance of, of involvement at all levels, that it's not just about a, a leadership question, but that there are broader questions. And that, you know, anytime we've seen these, these sensitive issues come up, although other parties have tried to suppress internal diversity, there is a way in which the voices of, of, uh, of individuals, what they're hearing from their constituents, really um, comes through. The other thing that I think it's important to, to underline on, on life issues is, I think sometimes people can see it in terms of only one goal or only one uh, way of, uh, of, of responding. 
Personally, I would say that porting access to adoption is a pro-life policy. I would say that uh, standing against the forced abortions that are targeting uh, uh, Uyghur women in China, for example, that that's an important uh, pro-life policy. Uh, that defending the ability of Canadians with disabilities to uh, receive care and support without being kind of pushed towards euthanasia, that's an important pro-life policy. You know, I, I think people who are concerned about the about human rights, about protecting the dignity of all life as I am, uh, should look at all life, at all threats to life. And maybe the, the field doesn't look so bleak uh, when you say, what are some different kinds of ways that we can... Uh, uh, support life, protect life, make it easier for people to to choose life. And my my advice to the pro life movement in general as well is is recognize that on this issue in particular, on many other issues, politicians may be on a spectrum. Uh, they may be with you to some extent, but not with you uh, in other respects. Uh, you may be able to build coalitions with people you don't expect to build coalitions with. Certainly, we found that on the on the euthanasia issue, uh, that there were there were many, many people. Uh, in the final vote, I think it was conservatives in the NDP voting against uh, liberal legislation, which isn't the pro-life coalition you would expect. But the, the liberal bill just went so far that at that point, even the NDP responding to uh, what they were hearing from disability rights groups and the best way to build those coalitions ultimately is to be kind, right? You can fiercely disagree with someone on a given issue on a given day, uh, but the fact that you might want to work with them on something else down the line means that you should try to maintain a, a relationship of uh, of love and goodwill and respect. You, you you should in any event, but for tactical reasons, it, it makes sense too as well. And I think one of the challenges the pro-life movement has had is uh, is when it's focused too much on pointedly deciding uh, who's who's uh, who's approaching perfection and everybody else is awful. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's not about watering down your own convictions, but recognizing that that politicians as humans uh, are across the spectrum. And pe- even people who agree with you 100% on the issue might have a different approach when it comes to tactics. And there may be people that don't agree with you 100%, but you can work with uh, uh, some of the time. So, so hopefully that provides a little bit of uh, well, of, of, of nuance and some, some, some suggestions. Uh, I mean, I, I think on, on some life issues, most notably on the euthanasia issue, although the policy has continued to move in the wrong direction, public sentiment is, is very much on the side of saying we need more safeguards. We don't want to see people pushed in this direction who don't have access to alternatives. And I think around access to adoption, around support for pregnant women uh, who, who want to choose life, I think uh, protecting the freedoms of pro-life organizations to, to exist and not have their charitable status revoked, I think you get a lot of Canadians on, on your side on those issues. And we, we have a liberal government that's very extreme, threatening to remove charitable status from pro-life groups, for example, uh, not just pro-life groups, from any charitable organization that has some measure of pro-life conviction. So there's a lot of work to do. Uh, and I think trying to come together, build coalitions, uh, treat people with kindness and respect uh, and recognize the dignity of, of all life is, is how we get there. Well, I will say, to be clear, we're a nonpartisan program. We're not endorsing any candidate in any party, but it has been instructive to see points of emphasis in Leslie Lewis's campaign as it relates to many of these issues, because it seems that her conscientious effort is to, to emphasize these points that seem most conducive to uh, facilitating consensus across a large swath of Canadian society. So on the life issue or abortion issue, for example, talking about sex selective abortions and late term abortions, 
and similarly for, for euthanasia and other issues. I mean, she seems to have a, a real gift for zeroing in on those angles and perspectives that are going to be most conducive to to facilitating consensus and getting buy-in. She's absolutely my uh, my number one choice. And uh, at the same time, I would just remind folks, uh, it's it's not just the leader, right? It's important to, to use that membership uh, beyond the leadership race to stay involved uh, and to and to you know, get involved in the riding associations and candidate nominations and and party conventions and just be part of the conversation about the broad range of issues that uh, uh, that are in front of us and how to move forward. I mean, it seems to me that one lesson for the Conservative Party after the 2021 election is bringing back members and voters into the fold who went somewhere else. In that context, I'm thinking in particular of the People's Party of Canada, which was a new, let's just say, alternative conservative or libertarian party that emerged on the scene a couple of election cycles ago, I believe, but uh, in 2021 uh, had a much higher presence and because of vote splitting actually resulted in in some seats not going to the Conservatives. And we've seen similar trends uh, at the provincial level here in Ontario. In the most recent provincial election, there were there were not there was not just one but two alternative conservative parties. We've seen similar trends in in Alberta with the Wild Rose Party. I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Again, it's not just faith based voters who are who are tempted to go in that direction and kind of walk away from the establishment conservative parties. There are there are other voters as well, but certainly people who take their their religious convictions seriously seem seem to gravitate to these new alternative parties. What, what's your what's your thought on on that particular? challenge for the federal conservatives and 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 trying to keep those fo- people uh those voters uh those members within the within the proverbial family. Yeah, it's a it's a great question and I I think some of the examples you use are are slightly different from each other. I don't know enough about the Ontario provincial scene to really comment on it in terms of the the other parties although I think it's it's clearly revealing of a problem if if the so-called alternative conservative party can't even get itself together under under one roof. Yeah. In, in Alberta, at least in the 2012 election that I, I ran in, the Wild Rose Party was a was a serious contender for government. It led the polls throughout most of the election, so that was a different a different situation. Um, a couple thoughts about the PPC federally. I think the PPC uh, has become a sort of none of the above option, and a lot of times when people vote for them, they don't actually look all that seriously at the at the candidates or the track record. And then there and there's exceptions to that, I'm sure, but you know, Maxime Bernier, as leader of that party, has really just been all over the map. He's certainly talked about issues that he allegedly cares about as PPC leader that he never talked about when he was a, a cabinet minister or a member of the Conservative caucus. And, and so I, I think it's less that people see that party as a serious contender for for government or as as offering a consistent alternative vision. I think it's more just that uh, sometimes people are frustrated that the Conservative Party isn't the the fullness of what they want to be, and so they um, they want to send a signal or something. The problem is the effect of sending that signal isn't usually the, the effect that they want it to have. So, if folks choose to vote PPC instead of Conservative, and the effect of that is that a Conservative loses and a Liberal wins, which is the most likely effect. PPC haven't won any seats in the last two elections. The effect of that is just more Liberal voices around the decision making table, and people would like to suppose that somehow that leads to. The government changing their behavior because the PPC got more support. That's that's not how how Justin Trudeau makes decisions. Justin Trudeau says, "Great, I won this seat that I wouldn't have won otherwise, and now I'm going to continue to push my uh, radical agenda." 
and, and I think it just of some of the the great MPs, uh, Tamara Jansen, uh, Harold Albrecht in the previous election, people that were were very uh, principled members of parliament who uh, who lost in a context where likely it was the vote splitting, it was the significant margin of uh, the PPC took off that led to liberals winning those seats. So you might think it send a, sends a message, but it just it just really doesn't. So. You know, at the same time, that that's a good conversation to have during the election. When you say to folks, "Come on, let's let's uh, the Conservative Party is not perfect, but let's work together and work internally." You know, outside of elections, the important thing to note is that the Conservative Party is a member-driven organization, and people have opportunities to shape the direction of that party through local nomination races, through getting elected to the Riding Association board, through going to conventions. The Conservative Party is governed by the Conservative Party constitution. That constitution is made and amended by members uh, voting, uh, sorry, by by elected delegates of members who are elected by members and who vote at party conventions. So there's some margin, for instance, in nominations for intervention by by elites, but uh, that margin is is limited and and circumscribed by the party constitution itself. And uh, so so we are truly a member driven organization. And I just wish all those folks that have been frustrated and have have sort of chosen to take their ball and go home would take their power and their influence and and get into the conservative uh, party and seek to shape it. You can't expect to always get your way, but you don't have you don't have any impact if you take yourself out of the conversation. When people choose a political vehicle that that isn't really a serious contender, that isn't trying to be a serious contender, without looking at the fact that the leader of that party is probably not anywhere near their own values. I just think that's, that's probably a missed opportunity. So I, I sympathize with the frustration. Sometimes I'm not always happy with aspects of the direction of our party, but get involved and shape that direction. You have the power to do so. Well, I think that's a great point of conclusion for our conversation. Uh, really appreciate your time today. I, I was just going to finish by, by quoting from your personal website or your, your official website about how you've gained a reputation for being among the most outspoken parliamentarians, having spoken more than 100,000 words during your first year in office, more than all three major party leaders combined. We appreciate you bringing your outspokenness and your loquaciousness to this program. Very grateful for your time today. Thank you, Patrick. You're certainly my uh, my favorite Patrick Brown uh, out there. And I, <laughs> I, appreciate, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share some thoughts with your listeners. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts and help us to reach more listeners by leaving us a rating or referring us to a friend. If you'd like to partner with us in the delivery of this podcast, head on over to our website at crownandcrozier.com and click the heart button in the top right-hand corner to learn more about making a one-time or monthly donation. We're sincerely grateful for you listening in, and we look forward to providing you with future episodes on church, state, and faithful citizenship. Until then, God bless.